Welcome to the Sober Podcast, part of the Soberverse created by the team at the Sober Network. The Sober Network has engaged in revolutionizing the treatment industry by creating its own token economy. We offer fresh ideas to an industry that has relied on dated interventions. We are responsive to a new generation of substance users who are attached to their phones so we can impact massive social change. Our unmatched technology displays solutions of our various brands, demonstrating a thorough understanding of how we get things done. We are proving that technology, along with incentivized human accountability, provides measurable and positive outcomes. Visit us at SoberNetwork.com. Welcome to the Sober Podcast, part of the Soberverse, brought to you by Sober Network. I'm Jamie Brickhouse, your host, and today we have Jana Woodbury, C-A-D-C-C-C-A-R, from the Renaissance Recovery on the show. She serves as Community Outreach for Renaissance Recovery, an outpatient program in Huntington Beach, California, and as Director of Communications for the Red Songbird Foundation. Thanks for being on the show, Jana. It's a pleasure to have you. Hi, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure as well. Um, Would you tell our listeners what brought you um, on the path to working in the field of addiction and give us a brief description of your jobs? Yes. So I got sober January 12th, 2012. That's Um, my birthday, January 12th. (laughs) It's a good day then. (laughs) Yes. So I ended up going to aftercare in California. Uh, It's expensive in California. So instead of remaining in school, it was important to have a dual income, I guess you could say. So that's actually how I got into the field was just um, having a network of friends. And they're like, you'd be really good in the recovery field. And so I started off as a tech. And then from there, just gradually continued to develop and grow and oh uh, just interrupt here and let me what's i know what a tech is but um in case some of our listeners don't what's a tech so behavioral health tech is somebody that essentially uh keeps track of what the clients are doing while they're in inpatient distributes medications uh is the liaison between the other operation staff and the clinical staff for the client Right. So from there, I essentially found myself in client advocacy after being a behavioral health tech where I was involved in a lot of crisis intervention. Mm -hmm. Um, 
point went back to school and became licensed as a drug and alcohol counselor um, and then also became a recovery coach as well. And so it's just, I've been in the field. I mean, that gosh, that was nine and a half years ago. So um, it's been a, a long time. <laughs> it feels like, <laughs> um, but in today I serve as clinical outreach for the district recovery community, which is, yeah. as you mentioned, outpatient in Huntington beach. Um, and my main goal is connecting with other treatment facilities um, explaining the program and essentially being that supportive person to get a, somebody who is in treatment from inpatient to aftercare services, which is essentially what we offer. Great. Great. Well, I mean, I, I know firsthand how um, important and beneficial uh, that can be because I, I, I also did inpatient uh, treatment uh, as part of my recovery program. And I'm forever grateful uh, for it and, and also for the people who worked in it like yourself. Um, I see that your family was featured. I think this is so cool. Um, your family was featured on Sesame Street's Parental Addiction Series with the major accomplishment of winning a Daytime Emmy for Best Short Film. What was that experience like and what role did the rest of your family play? That experience was incredible for Sesame Street to be able to bring awareness to addiction within the family and what that looks like uh, was huge just because they do have such a big platform. And so they created a Muppet named Carly, whose parents were addicted to opiates. And so Carly, the Muppet was placed in foster care system, which a lot of times does happen, unfortunately, whenever there are parents that are absent mm -hmm. um, or consistently relapsing or, or just abusing drugs and alcohol, even mental health. Uh, typically, the child is either placed with someone safe or they go to aftercare. And so I was actually at a behavioral health conference and there was a producer uh, who was she was one of the keynote speakers and she was like, if you know of any families that are in recovery that have a child around the age of nine, let me know. I'd like to be in contact with them. And so yeah. I reached, I actually was approached to reach out. I didn't think anything of it um, and went through a series of different interviews and had no idea what it was for. And then when our family was selected, because my my husband and I, uh, we've been married 14 years, but actually got sober together, which is very, very uncommon for that to happen. And then for a family unit to stay together, right? Uh, it selected us and they were like, oh, by the way, you will be doing a series with Sesame Street. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so I didn't know what it looked like, um, but they essentially came to our house and filmed us for two to three days, uh, just because I am in recovery. And again, my husband, the way that we've raised our children is in a way, you know, where we talk about the big feelings, we mm -hmm. validate our children, we create a safe space where there is open communication and dialogue just to foster that healthy um, environment, I guess you could say. Right. So right. amazing. Um, it was, that was a small documentary that they did. And then we actually went to New York where Celia, who was two when I got sober, who was now 13, but was nine at the time that we did the filming, she got to go out and go in their studio and film a bunch of other different videos with, between her and the actual Muppet, just again, identifying what big feelings are and things like that. Ah, oh, that's so cool. That's so cool. Yeah. And when did it, uh, when did it air? I want to say two 
it was before COVID. So two, what was that? Two, it's been what? Two and a half. Well, two, 2019 probably. Yeah. 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 October 2019 is when it aired. Oh, okay, cool. Well, everyone should go out and look for that. How does your career enhance your own recovery? That's a good question. It's the main thing. If you are in recovery and you're working in the behavioral health field, continuing to understand that your work is not to replace your program. Mm. Uh, Important to find the balance between who we show up as in the treatment space, as well as in our own personal recovery. Uh, So it's really made me grateful to continue to like have that separateness that I've been able to create. Uh, Burnout is huge in our field, compassion fatigue. And that's just even for people that aren't in recovery. But when people are in recovery working in the field, um, it just puts just so much more of an emphasis of, hey, even though you have five years sober and you're working in the field, you still have to develop as a person. I mean, that's really what we did last year isn't going to necessarily work this year. It's that continual spiritual growth that we have to strive for. I love I um I love what you all of what you just said, but uh, there was a term you threw out that I really liked, um, compassion fatigue, mm-hmm. uh, which I could you know I, I totally get. I mean I I think many of us can get that in recovery, but especially um, for people like yourself who work in the field. Um, mm-hmm. uh, just a little bit ex- to expand on that, D- did you find yourself going into any other programs because of your career, like in other words, like Al-Anon or anything like that? Um, so codependency, definitely. They say that when you get sober, the drugs and alcohol, um, are just a symptom of what's actually going on. And so that first sobriety is just physical. I mean, of course it's all physical sobriety, but not to pick up no matter what. And then that second year for me was really understanding what emotional sobriety was. And so looking at how I relate to people, places, and things, um, how do I continue to work? on the things that are continuing to come up for me, whether that's, you know, an an inability to be assertive or for me specifically, it was codependency that I struggled with just being avoidant of conflict. (laughs) And so I rather just go with the flow and not communicate what my needs are than say, Hey, this doesn't work. (laughs) I totally, I'm the, I'm the same person. I totally uh, get that. I'm, I'm that way too. I, it, to me, it's easier, right, to suffer in silence than to um, than to potentially cause a conflict or a fight. Yeah, absolutely. Well, well, listen, uh, we are going to just stop for a quick commercial break, but we will be right back. So stick with us. The Sober Podcast is giving a voice to recovery and is now part of the Soberverse. Join our new virtual sober environment where you can connect with other people like yourself or find helpful resources on the following digital spaces. Soberverse.com, SoberNetwork.com, Sober.com, SoberSystems.com, SoberPodcast.com, SoberCoin.com, and RecoveryCoaches.com. And we are back talking to Jana Woodbury. Um, how has the industry, and you kind of touched on this already, but um, maybe we can dig a little bit deeper. How has the industry you work in ever put a strain on your sobriety and how? 
Well, we're on the front lines. There, the need for people, the need for help is always going to be there, especially with the pandemic and everything that's transpired. Mental health. We were not even at the tip of the iceberg in terms of the residual of, you know, everything that's happened and mental health and substance abuse has skyrocketed. I actually heard. A statistic the other day where somebody every 11 minutes there would be a fentanyl overdose and now it's every three seconds and so Jesus uh, so being available is something that I've always pride like found pride in and mm-hmm. so it's caused strain in the sense that it's hard to put the phone down because again it's always ringing it's always going to ring there's always more work to do an assessment that needs to be done a client's family that needs attention um, especially in the work that I do again, I'm on the front line. So I'm working directly with the treatment facility, uh, whose patient is stepping down to the district recovery for aftercare for PHP IOP, but I'm also working with the families. And so something, and this is something I actually need to continue to work on it, but, I, but something I always say is, and this is my direct number. If there's anything that you need, please don't hesitate to reach out, <laughs> which really sets itself up for people to reach out to me but yes <laughs> and set you <laughs> up for compassion fatigue there you go um and so that's i think what's been the most challenging part is just continuing to be available for other people and and i have four kids at home and mm-hmm. and so you know, a lot going on within my home and if i want to continue to raise my children in a way to where they have that emotionally present parent striving for balance is something that I have to do every single day and having the boundaries and saying, Hey, I can't do this right now. and not feeling guilty about it. Right. (laughs) Continue to work on daily. What's the most uh, difficult struggle you have been through in sobriety since you've been sober and how did you overcome it? Uh, I think the biggest struggle it wasn't about like four years of sobriety I realized I didn't know what my passion was or my was and had uh, a lot of unresolved trauma I guess you could say more so just from having absent parents Um, and then in the dynamic with my parents I was learning that I was more of the parent and they were the child. So that parent-child relationship with me being the parent. And so yeah. you, when we grow, I mean, in life in general, you have an idea of like what a mother is and, and what a father is and the different roles that they play. And so I think I was attached to this idea of what a family was supposed to be and would continue to put myself in these positions to be let down continuously over and over. And so I really, and again, that was at like four years sober. I, I had to do a lot of work on attachment theory, um, how I attach to people, places and things. And from equanimity or it's, you know, other people are responsible for their own suffering. It has nothing to do with me and seeing people for, for who they are, they're their own person. They've had their own experience and they did the best that they could with what they knew at that point in time. And so Mm -hmm. coming to terms with that and finding acceptance was a huge challenge and being able to let it go. And then with that. And how did you do it? Um, I mean, how did you get to those, that, that uh, point of acceptance and letting it go? A lot of meditation. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) 
they, I would go to day long retreats, like silent retreats and sit there. And it was the type of pain that you feel like deep down in your court where like, it's painful just to even sit in it physically. Right. Um, yeah. So a lot of day long retreats, silent meditation, prayer, uh, continuing to reach out, being vulnerable to people, because that was something because of the way I grew up with mm-hmm. absolute parents, emotional specifically, I always found myself presenting in a way where everything is okay. You know, my therapist was always like, you're a bad therapy client sometimes. <laughs> and you're like, nothing, everything's okay. And so yeah. I was just, my defense mechanism was presenting so well to where you, you wouldn't know anything that was going on. And I didn't want to share that with you because then there was that fear of rejection, abandonment, all those other things that come up. So I really had to do a lot of work again on the equanimity component, just that understanding that concept for what it is, looking at my codependency, uh, understanding what I do have control over, which is just myself and how I relate to things. Um, I can't change other people. I can just change how I show up and Mm -hmm. being able to from that place of being objective is gold. Like when you actually learn to be objective uh, know that it has nothing to do with you and still show up from a place of love, obviously, and compassion and tolerance. It changes everything. So it was a lot of work. <laughs> wow. It sounds like it, but it sounds amazing. And and I do love the um, idea, even though it sounds a little masochistic, but I can, but I, I see it. As, I can see how it could work when you were talking about those meditation retreats where you sit there for hours or a day or even an entire day, you know, cause we always hear that we learn what's to get sober to, to uh, uh, even if it's a bad feeling to sit with it um, yeah. and, you know, and accept it and then let it pass. But to, to actually really sit with it and feel it um, even though it sounds masochistic, I could see that that could be if, if you can, you know, if you can do it and you're in the safe place to do that, how, mm-hmm. um, cathartic that could be and and, mm-hmm. how, and and how that could really get you to that point of acceptance and letting go so so thanks for that so maybe maybe i will um i'll do that someday <laughs> or maybe i'll just do it on my own it's like you know what okay i'm feeling this way just sit with it for a minute and you know and don't react and just and mm-hmm. just you know just be still right yeah don't don't be reactionary a lot of times when we are in a place of struggle we also turn to other people and say, Hey, what do you think? Mm, mm -hmm. What do you think? So subconsciously we're searching for an answer and and we'll sometimes, you know, adopt someone else's truth or opinion into our own when it might not be the the best or wise counsel. Um, And so being able to take a step back and use the coping skills of, you know, prayer, meditation, things like that, it allows for a whole other, it allows you to hold space for yourself. Yeah. Well, great stuff. Um, Lots to chew on. And uh, we are almost out of time, but is there anything else um, you would like to tell us um, in general or anything about Renaissance recovery that our listeners should know? Yeah. So Renaissance Recovery, I, uh, I've been with them for a little while now. And, you know, we talked about compassion, fatigue, the, being with them. This is the first time that I've 
been like extremely healthy in a sense, actually working in this field because of the actual culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that, you know, transpires to the clients as well. And so being able to be a part of an organization that, I mean, has incredible outcomes really um, because we're getting clients when they're, yes, they're stable, but now they're starting to immerse back into life. And what does that look like? And so having the appropriate clinical support um, also while showing them that they can have fun in recovery. uh, And again, also with having a staff and team that's uh, very centered around just a healthy culture. um, It's been, uh, it's been amazing for me. So definitely want to, you know, be a resource for people that are looking at maybe they've only done inpatient and, they've gone back and relapsed or, you know, breaking that cycle and being open to actual, you know, full continuum um, and transitioning out in life accordingly, where you actually get to bring those natural stressors into that controlled environment. It's so important. Um, And it's something that not a lot of people talk about um, is continued care. And so, um, yeah, we're in Huntington beach. It's a fantastic facility and location. And again, I just would love to be a resource for anyone out there. Well, thank you so much. And tell us uh, how our listeners can get in touch with you um, if they want to reach out or with uh, Renaissance Recovery. Um, so with me, uh, I can give my phone number. <laughs> you don't have to do that. I mean, you've got, we don't want compassion fatigue to come out of this sober podcast. <laughs> you can go to uh, www.renaissancerecovery.com. Um, you can also find us on social media. So Instagram, Renaissance Recovery. Uh, I'm also on, pretty active on social media. Instagram, I have a, a platform there where I do a lot of different writing, blog writing and share. What's, um, what's your handle on Instagram? If you want so to. it's Jana Woodbury. So J-A-A-N-A. There's three A's. Yeah. And then Woodbury. It's just my name if you look it up. Fabulous. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Jaina, for joining us on Sober Podcast today. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. And uh, I'm Jamie Brickhouse, your host. I'm author of Dangerous When Wet, a memoir of booze, sex, and my mother. And uh, it's an ebook, an audiobook on Amazon. And I also tell a true story wearing high heels every day on TikTok. And um, I'm at at Jamie underscore Brickhouse and Jamie Brickhouse on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you, Jaina, for joining us. It's been great to have you on the show. I am signing out for Sober Podcast, and we will be back with another show next week. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Sober Podcast. We hope that you have found this episode helpful and look forward to you joining us next time. As we continue to grow and implement positive change, we hope that you'll share our podcast with your friends and loved ones. They can find us on all the major podcast directories. If you have an idea for the show, want to leave positive feedback, ideas, or comments, connect with us on thesoberpodcast.com. You can also reach us on our social media platform on The Soberverse. We'd love to hear from you. A special thanks to all those who make this show happen. Jamie Brickhouse, our host, Carrie, our producer, Carl Fessenden, our voice, and our sponsor, The Sober Network.